Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Benjamin Kepner. Benjamin, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yes. Thanks for the introduction, Alex. My name is Benjamin Kepner. I'm the CEO and founder of Global Social Media Marketing. So tell us about your company. What value do you provide? Yes, so my company is a marketing and education technology training company that offers a variety of marketing and education technology training services such as Google Ads, YouTube Ads, Sales Funnels. We do training, workshops, speaking engagements, and we'll be releasing four courses next year. Very cool. Um, what is it like to generate you know, consumable content? Is this something you've been doing for a while? Um, is this something you're just getting into? What's, what's your history with it? Yeah, so I started my career in social media when I graduated from the University of Georgia in 2011. So really, when I graduated college, social media manager was just becoming a job. And that's how I kind of started my career in content creation and consumption and uh, understanding that content was going to be a huge thing for marketing in the future. And what platforms did you use when you started? What did you learn? How did that develop? Yeah, it kind of started in Facebook and Twitter, and eventually it moved over to YouTube. And it kind of developed out of me, I would say, uh, executing what a VP of marketing or a head of communications wanted to me becoming a social media strategist and leading the social media strategy. Interesting. Um, What was that transition like going from kind of the person who's executing to the person who's deciding what work has to be done. Yeah, I think that's the research. Also, it was, you know, an emerging communication channel, right? Like uh, social media, technically, I would say, <laughs> revolutionized the way that we communicate today. So I don't think there was a, a right way to be leading that strategy. I think it's um, applicable in any business uh, vertical, right? Like if you want good strategy, there's going to be a research phase and uh, that's just doing the work and, and being consistent about learning and, and seeing what works and testing rapidly and then getting where those results and improving. How can companies prepare for the first party data world that we're moving into in the future with things like regulation and such? Yeah. So it's kind of my understanding from a marketing side is it's the ability to opt in, right? So if a user is willing to opt in uh, to provide first-party data, a company needs to start thinking about what users actually want to get from a company that may be useful to them in any way, whether it's through education or um, you know, entertainment, whatever that is, that value offer, that they're getting something in return and then the company is getting that information to hopefully build out a better overall customer experience. So whether it's loyalty or uh, exclusive, you know, access to things, things like that, I think are ways in which companies can start to think about how can I get somebody's data, but provide something to them for that data. That's interesting. Um, So you're talking about finding a balance between the kind of freemium model where you're using advertising as a lever to keep a service um, cheaper, more more accessible, more value to the user, um, and how to balance that against the amount of data that should be used to enhance that experience. It does, yeah. I mean, not every user is going to want to give their data 
I think is the other thing that people need to understand. Not everyone wants to give their data away, but if there is a, um, let's say if there's a value, as maybe a, a different way to describe it, if there's a value behind why you're collecting that data from that person, and that value aligns with the person that's giving that data, then then that's a good, I think, company approach, as long as those values are rooted in good business principles. When it comes to organic versus paid content, I remember you had a really interesting perspective here. So I want to talk about which which has been more effective in driving sales. And in general, does that change by the company? What are the factors there? Yeah, so for me personally, um, paid has been better. Um, I'm not saying that organic doesn't work well. And then I think the other thing that's um, interesting is you've got the whole influencer marketing thing, which is kind of like in between both of those in a certain way. Um, so for me, paid advertising has worked better. I would say arguably number one, because you're going to reach more people. Um, unless you are a celebrity or a true influencer, um, you are not going to be able to reach a lot of people organically. And, and the algorithms are set up that way. And people... I guess maybe still don't understand that or it's taken some time for the general population to understand that, you know, for example, if you post something on Facebook, 5% of the people are going to actually see your post if you're a brand. Um, so that's why all of these brands are paying money. And that's also how these social media networks have now become profitable companies as they've evolved, right? It's all, it's all through advertising. So number one, I think people just need to understand that, you know, it's like television as the best analogy I always give. It's like, if you want to run a, TV commercial in the 90s, you didn't just get your TV commercial for free on television. Like you had to pay to play. So it's the same thing with social media. I think the other thing is, is that when you are obviously paying, you have more targeting capabilities. So you're, I guess what I'm trying to say there is your audience sample size opens up into new audiences that you wouldn't have generally reached organically. Because obviously if you're just posting organically, it's maybe just your followers versus if you're posting paid, you're reaching people outside of people that are already aware of your brand or considering your brand. Um, they could just be completely cold. They've never even heard of you. Um, so, you know, I think there's that happening on paid too, that you're not getting with organic. You're getting a lot more uh, random, maybe not, you know, different people that weren't even thinking about your brand. Um, and then the last thing I would say is that with organic, it's, it's hard to track, right? So organic, you can track. Uh, hopefully you're using some type of data analytics tracking solution, but with paid, um, you should have that attribution set up and, you know, it's not hundred percent accurate, but there are a lot of tools and a lot of money around that too. And, um, in some ways it's, it's easier to via paid than organic, not always, but in some ways it is. Would you say that a robust attribution model is at the core of an innovative marketing organization? today yeah i think a lot of companies right now agencies are all talking about attribution models and which one's right and i think that you need to just have an agreement from the organization of like what that looks like if you're in different industries then obviously maybe that makes sense to have different attribution models but yeah i do think for any organization to be successful in marketing they need to have buy-in as a company into an attribution model and then kind of lead with that um, as kind of looking at that as a success factor for the company. When it comes to your clients, what kind of deliverables do you create and what, you know, what more specific things would you do for them? 
Deliverables would include a number of things. You know, deliverable could be a creative piece of content, like a great video. Um, it could be delivering a campaign that's generating sales. It could be delivering market research or going into a new country that they want to expand into. It just depends on what are the business needs and what are their goals and how do we build deliverables to reach those goals. Talking about another country sparked this question. How how do you gauge demand in the industry um, in, in, in different market areas? Yeah, so I'm always going to look at the population size. It's just a standard you know, metric. How many people live in that country? Second thing I'm always going to look at is I'm going to look at um, like the Google uh, keyword search volume of that country. So if a given industry is giving me a list of their you know, top to 10, 15 keywords to describe their service or product, I'm going to go search what that volume looks like um, on search trends in that country. And then I'm probably going to pay attention to something economical or political. I'm going to read the news, um, try to go find something that's a credible source, something that's ending in .gov, .edu, .org, um, that's kind of giving me more some of the economical trends going on in that, com- in that uh, given region. How to really validate the, uh, the opportunity and kind of the market potential. That's interesting. Would you say that looking at areas of potential demand is um, more of an art than a science? Mm, Yeah, it can be for sure. I think um, not everybody is thinking about, for example, having uh, a language that's not maybe necessarily the primary language in a country. You know, for example, like um, Brazil might speak Spanish, English, and Portuguese, but everyone's trying to target everything in Brazil for Portuguese, but maybe they're not doing enough Spanish, and there's an opportunity there because there's less advertisers advertising in Spanish in Brazil, even though we know that's not the first language, it's actually a secondary language. So little things like that, I think, is more of the arts, whereas the science is um, you know, more of the data. That's interesting. Um, so when you're making recommendations to a client, is there ever a time when your gut feeling kind of goes against the data that you're seeing? And how do you go about solving that? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in data. I try to let that guide most of the business decisions or client decisions that I will make. However, there are some things with clients that even with showing them the data, that they still have their opinion about how they want their company to look or the initiatives or the values or the way that they want to communicate their brand overall. So those are things that I can't change. Those are out of my control. And there's a balance, right? Um, There's presenting the data and making a decision based on the data. And then there are business decisions that are made on gut and feeling and overall, uh, I would say, vision for a company. And there's just the balance in the conversation of having that with the client. Why do branded campaigns work at a more efficient return on ad spend than unbranded campaigns? The easiest answer to that is, is that all of the metrics that you would see that attribute to those better performing results that you mentioned um, would be seen in the data. So for example, if branded campaigns are producing more sales, it's because of all the other metrics leading up to that sale the click-through rate is probably 20 to 30%. Uh, the cost per click 
may be less if it's in a niche industry. It may be more, so that's not a great metric. Conversion rate, though, definitely, right? Same thing with conversion values, so the number of revenue that you're generating from all of those clicks, and then maybe potentially return on ad spend. So if you look at all of the metrics, number one, the data is showing branded perform better, not just because they produce more sales, but because all of the metrics across the board as the consumer moves that process are better. That's the data side of it. The marketing creative side of it is that you know that brand. You trust that brand. You don't go to Google to go search for uh, air conditioner. You know, you go search for cool air air conditioner, like it's a name brand or like a McDonald's hamburger versus a regular hamburger. You know, you you already have an affinity or an interest in that brand and you're looking for the solution or the product around that brand. You know, so it's a more a more defined sales path at that stage, I would say. You're further down the sales journey. That's interesting. Uh, what are some of your favorite metrics for computing uh, traffic through the funnel? What are my favorite metrics to track through the funnel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, conversion rate, click-through rate, um, return on ad spend. Those are the big ones. If I'm doing lead generation, obviously cost per lead is a big one. Um I do a lot of video, so I also really pay attention a lot to view rate. Yeah, engagement is really important. Um, that those those are always like my favorite metrics. There are always there, there are all sorts of creative um, ways to measure if a customer is really engaging with um, the marketing messaging. Um, okay, I have a yes or no question for you. Yep. Uh, yes or no, and why? Um, why uh, would you say that there is no good attribution offering on the market right now? Everybody I'm talking to in marketing doesn't have the answer to an attribution model. Some people think they do, but like most people that I'm talking to don't know. So I'm going to say that, uh, yeah, I don't think that there is a correct attribution model right now out there. Yeah. What What do you think is missing? How would you... What, what what area would you say it is underdeveloped in the offering right now? I think the biggest thing for me in my personal journey with clients, like coming from the client side, is the ability to track somebody as they move through systems. So a lot of that came from me actually running YouTube ads webinar sales funnels where the prospect would go through four to five different types of technologies and there's no way for me to attribute somebody when they're going through that many different systems because these systems are not built for you know whatever pixel or platform that I'm sending that traffic from there's a I don't know there's a drop-off when somebody's moving against websites versus like actually different systems and so I think that attribution in general lacks tracking people as they move through systems that's interesting yeah I, I have to agree um and it and there's also i would say that one of the most important um you know channels that a person would listen to would be their own kind of gut and i think that's a that's another thing that would greatly factor into somebody's decision to go with a company or not and that's really um i would say basically impossible to measure yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying no one has really figured it out 
from my perspective. And I think you have to just choose one based on which you personally feel is the best option for your business. Yeah. Would you say the answer right now is different models for different kinds of activities and um, not to kind of try to think of one solution for everything? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I think you should have multiple, but I don't know. Some organizations want to just have the same attribution model. So you just need buy-in. You just need agreement and you need to test them. And who's also to say you can't change your attribution model every year if you don't want to? Well, a lot of people do. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's all about testing and figuring out what works best. On the subject of testing, do you set up a lot of A-B tests and such in uh, your client's uh, portfolios? Yeah, we do a lot of A-B testing. So anything from targeting to landing pages to creative, um, we're constantly testing. We just kind of have that philosophy of always testing. What's your education background? Yeah, my background, I studied international business and marketing uh, at UGA. Those were my majors. And then I took uh, Spanish and Chinese. So I was very uh, business and language focused. It really had no technical experience outside of just you know, basic computer knowledge and typing uh, when I graduated. So a lot of my technical skills came after college, all self-taught. That's good news. It's good news <laughs> for the entrepreneurs out there. <laughs> what, that you don't have to go to school to get good at tech? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you can teach yourself tech on your own terms whenever you want. It's... There's plenty of free resources. If you haven't heard me say YouTube at least five times on this podcast, go check out YouTube. Yeah, I love YouTube. Um, what are some of the influencers or you know areas that you learn from to get better at marketing? Yeah, there's this guy on YouTube that has a great channel called Surfside PPC. He is um, very well-versed. He puts out really good content. Um as far as like publications, SEM Journal is something that I would say all Google advertisers that I've worked with in the last year or two keep sending me that. So it seems like people really pay attention to that for search-related things. Um, I personally am connected to a ton of stuff in social media. I have a pretty large social media network. So I consume a lot of news through my network too, just what they're posting. Um, LinkedIn is funny enough, my biggest, uh, social media platform. And I think that's actually how you found me mm-hmm. was on LinkedIn through, uh, your, your automated solution that we were discussing. So, yes. um, but what I would say is, is you should have, you know, maybe a, a, a good news website, a good YouTube channel, and then, you know, have the network connections that are thought leaders and seeing what they're talking about. I think that's kind of how I balance it. That's interesting. So you, you really get to understand the cutting edge of what's going on in the industry by following um, those people. Yeah, and connecting with them, not just following them, like actually literally having a one-to-one connection. And how do you, do you have like a um, standard way that you reach out to people and network? Or is it more organic? It's pretty organic for me. Funny enough, like I'm inundated with LinkedIn messages. Um, I counted our, I counted my personal LinkedIn messages and I received over 3,600 uh, last year. Wow. So getting that many messages is funny because I get more messages than I do emails almost now. And 
you know, I feel like for me personally, if I'm getting that many, like my outreach, I can do now and again when I feel the need, but it's not a big focus for me. Obviously, if I can automate it, I've used LinkedIn tools and things like that, but um, getting inbound is great, honestly. Like mm-hmm. it's it's much easier for me to um, take the conversation in another direction when they're reaching out to me versus me reaching out to them. Yeah, I, last I saw you had quite a few followers on LinkedIn. It was very impressive. I think you, you definitely have the big, yeah, 18K, 18.4K. Yeah. That is quite impressive. Yeah. yeah, it's my largest social media channel. It's so funny because I don't even think my friends and family realize that like, yeah, I'm connected to over 18,000 people on LinkedIn. And I didn't even have a LinkedIn until I graduated college in 2011. Interesting. Would you say that you really understood the fundamentals of putting the right keywords on? Like, how did how did so many people find you? There's a number of different ways. I mean, it's been built. Obviously, we're in 2022. So it's like a decade of building it to where it is. Um, I went through phases of using LinkedIn automation tools to send like connection campaigns and uh, to try to do sales for my company as a CEO. Um, you know, went through those phases. Also, I've worked with tons of uh, marketing databases with my clients and things like that. Some of my clients uh, are okay with me connecting with, you know, colleagues or people that are in the industry if it's, you know, if it's industry relevant. Uh, definitely a lot of B2B organizations that I worked with. The other thing is I've traveled and gone to hundreds of trade shows. So growth hack tip, and I don't know why more sales guys don't do this, is if you go to any trade show, the most important person at the trade show is actually the event planner because the event planner has the CSV or the Excel file, the contact list of all the people that are attending the trade show. So if you can get that list from that person, then you've got a huge opportunity of prospects and connections that you can connect with related to that trade show in your industry. Interesting. Yeah. So I did that from like, you know, 50 to a hundred different trade shows. So, I mean, that alone is probably five, ten thousand people that were like from trade shows that I went to. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And so those are different ways in which I grew my uh, LinkedIn. You know, it's kind of started as a professional place. Then I was going to trade shows and then some people through databases and then, you know, just different ways. And now now it's just like is probably anyone like 18,000 people. I don't communicate with 18,000 people in a day. So um, at this stage, it's just kind of like letting the inbound work. And then yeah, if there's a thought leader or somebody that I want to work with, or to your point, I want to connect with them because I you don't know, follow what they're doing, then I will reach out. But I don't do a lot of um, outreach now because I already have so many people that I'm connected to. Like how much is enough, I guess, is, is the question. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. Would you say it's never enough? There's never a cap? Um, I don't know. It's a hard question to say. I mean, it's like asking somebody if they want to be famous and how famous do they want to be. Mm. I guess that's you, that's a fair... You know, do you want to have a million people follow you or do you want to be like, you know, LeBron James or Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson where like the whole world knows who you are? Like, I don't know. It'd probably be the same question you'd ask a famous person. Why do you want to be famous or how famous do you really want to be? Okay. Well, if you were a brand and you had to answer that question, 
would yeah, as a, as a, a brand, brand would you want to be as relevant as spoken about as possible yeah i think most brands definitely corporate america would say yes i think they would say that um I mean, I guess the other thing is what they're saying about you. You know, if it's positive, then yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you want everybody saying positive things? I think everybody wants that. But if you have a lot of negative things, then maybe that's an indicator in your company that they're serving people that you shouldn't be serving in the first place or they're not really the right fit as a customer. I think a lot of people always say the customer is always right, which is true in many cases in many industries. But... Also, that they're not always right is my perspective. And so in some businesses, you have to let go of clients that are not good for your business because they actually stunt the growth of the company and potentially the culture of the customers that are in the company they're trying to build. Mm, interesting. Say more about that. How can, I you, mean, I, I th- how can you identify I think, it? <laughs> it comes down to me just having clients in my business that haven't worked out ultimately, right? Like I've worked in tons of industries some industries are different um they operate differently and same things i see other people also don't like change you know i'm i'm 33 right now as a ceo i'm talking sometimes to people that are in their 50s and 60s intelligent very well experienced smart people but sometimes they don't want to change their business if they've been doing something the way they've been doing it for 20 years you know so there's those dynamics uh, of, I think in business, um, somebody once told me every business relationship is meant to end, but hopefully the relationships that you have in business are good ones and they last for as long as you can have them last because they're a good fit. How do you build a good team? The answer is uh, getting lucky, um, trying different things. You know, I think you also have to have training. You know, I think there's some companies that don't invest in training and they don't do any training at all. And I think that's a fallacy. You can't expect your entire company to know what to do in their job. There needs to be some type of training, I think. Um, And then, you know, you've got to have agreement. It's like uh, not necessarily company culture, but just that they agree with the... There's alignment. There's alignment with what the, the... you know, the team members' roles are and their purpose, and they are able to to be in alignment with those things to see that, you know, for the overarching business goal, I think. You know, and that's not always the case. Sometimes there's people that are in positions that they should never have been in those positions to be with in the first place, but the company just didn't have anyone to put in that position, so they just put that person there. Versus having a team of people that are experts at what they do in a team that's good synergy around those talents, then you might have a very, very successful team. So I think that's also the other thing that I've realized is like, you know, I've tried to bootstrap and start up a lot of things, but at a certain phase, I'm going to have to have a certain talent level and that's hard. You have to find good talent. Yeah. And, and definitely I agree on the training front. I was told in business school that you should apply for jobs to which you are around 70% of the way qualified in the sense that it should be a little bit of a stretch. You should be challenged um, to be in that role. And that made that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and if you project that out and let's say that, you know, perhaps not everybody is 70% qualified, but perhaps 90% qualified on average, 
then there is going to there is going to be no matter what some amount of training that is left and um and an organization that seeks to that acknowledges that and tries to fix it is definitely going to be strong yeah yeah it's hard though i've done a lot of training and uh i guess that would be just the last thing i would say about training is that's why i'm creating all these courses now moving into this year is i realized that all of those documents and training um could be uh, compartmentalized into a resource that any new person that I hire would go through that course and would speed up that training process much quicker. Yeah, that that's definitely something that I have been interested in doing. But I think that the nature of how your business works makes you a really good candidate to create some really good content around best practices and monetize that. Um, that's a popular model these days. Um, what kind of got you interested in making your own content? Yeah. I mean, specifically the course, um, thing for me is new. Um, that's coming from me actually having course creator clients and running advertising campaigns where we're generating them, you know, millions of dollars and me then realizing, wow, I'm literally, um, helping this person generate all these students and course sales. Why am I not creating a course? What's preventing me from doing that? And then I actually had two people reach out to me on LinkedIn, funny enough, uh, to create courses for them. And so that's those are the um, people that I'll be working with. And then I'll hopefully be releasing our own course internally. So it's just interesting. It's kind of like um, I knew I should do it. And then LinkedIn kind of knocked on my door and it was like, I'm ready to do this. Cool. Do you have any LinkedIn tips for managing or growing your network or um, just kind of leading a large audience in general? Yeah, LinkedIn's tough, right? Because there's a lot of, I would say, technology tools now and automation and spammy things happening. What I can say for me of like people, when I look at like my LinkedIn feed, right? Like I mean, I've got like 18,000 people and then I've got my personal, like what I'm doing. Things that stand out to me are, are like pictures or videos of like things that are like actually genuine or like in person, like real world things like that are humanized. Um, like all the articles and trend reports and all those things are, are okay. I do think that the LinkedIn newsfeed is great um, and kind of engaging in that sometimes because like I feel like smart business owners are reading those articles or at least I know I am as a business owner, like I pay attention to the top, you know, LinkedIn articles of the day or whatever. So it's good to kind of see who's maybe engaging in there. Groups are good. I haven't personally found a lot of success with groups. Most of my success with LinkedIn is, is through messaging. And the messaging just needs to be short and sweet um, and of value again. Like don't, I hate when somebody reaches out to me on LinkedIn and says like, oh yeah, like we have the same interests like we should connect or like you know somebody i know like we should connect like it's really you can just tell it's spam or it's, it's just not thought out it's not customized um i'm just gonna delete it you know um there's just a lot of automation i would say happening on linkedin these days and not enough personalization and not enough authenticity and not enough like you know real world stuff um I think polls have also recently taken over my feed. Every day I see a poll now 
and those are cool because those are interactive and I see a lot of engagement, but for some strange reason, the algorithms are showing me a lot of polls. So I guess that's uh, just something I'm noticing. If you can come up with a good poll, that's also a good tactic. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, do you advertise on all of the different social medias and do you have like a preference for a specific kind of company? Yeah, so I may have mentioned YouTube a couple times in this podcast, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, call them out again. So YouTube is definitely the platform of choice for me. Um, it's my favorite social media channel, and um, I've had the best success with it. We do do advertising on all the other ones. So we've done Google, Twitter. Um, I've done some random Twitch streams. We've done Pinterest. Um, we've done Snapchat. We've done Hulu. I mentioned that, I think. We've done all the radios and TVs and stuff like that. Um, we haven't touched TikTok. Uh, everybody keeps like asking me why we're not doing it. It's just, it's just another channel. I think you, at a certain phase, just need to figure out which channel you're getting success with and stick with that. Um, that makes that makes sense. It's it's uh, every every company has a unique optimal structure for marketing activities that best addresses the audience in the way that they want to be addressed, right? And so um, it's, it's all, every single thing is a custom-made marketing machine. Do you think that um, the future will see more standardization across marketing organizations? Yeah, to a certain extent, I think. I think there's a bandwidth thing, right? There's so much to do now in marketing. Like, <laughs> You can't be on every channel. There's no time to, to be on every channel. So there's certain things that you have to automate and standardize and use templates and technology when possible. Um, but that's also maybe why I'm in a good place and what I do as a profession. Like maybe the need for marketing professionals is even greater than ever before because of all the new marketing channels. Um, I think that, do, do you think that AI will become more prominent in marketing in the future or do you think that there will be like a resistance to using it to contact people yeah i do think there's resistance i don't think i'm personally resisting but i don't like when um people of certain creations of tools using ai um say that it eliminates the need for humans i think that people need to be careful about the way in which they present the uh you know, the use of eliminating the, the need for a human. There are certain things, I think, in business that still need a human. Um, and obviously, if you're <laughs> saying something's going to replace somebody's job, you better understand the repercussions of, like, it'll help the company, but how does that person feel in that conversation in that moment? Um, and there's just certain things I don't think you can automate or use AI. I think there's a, I think there's a balance. And uh, I think, yeah, I, I agree with your overall question of, yes, more AI will be in marketing as time goes on. Yeah, I agree. I think especially in attribution modeling and determining, you know, the next best message or step or configuration of a display ad, it seems like everything is moving towards computers making those decisions on a very personal basis. Right now for the bots, you know, I, I have a bot that reaches out to people to become guests on the show. And um, I'm very excited about it because it has great results. I get to connect with amazing marketers like yourself and learn a lot about the industry. And the way that it works is I 
just search for like a marketing executive type role. And then let's say there's a hundred pages, the bot will just go down and message everybody um, with a first name uh, customization. So it'll say, hello, Benjamin. Um, And this is all automatic. There's so much more that is possible um, to, you know, and, and we do see like some, I think some recruiters do a really good job of this, um, but like putting other custom kind of uh, notes into a message. But um, generally, I, I agree that there's not a lot of customization when it comes to LinkedIn messaging. Um, how do you think that will evolve in the future? I mean, to say it'll evolve to be more personalized is tough. I mean, there are flows and if-then conditional statements and things like that, right? Like, I've done a lot of chatbot marketing or conversational marketing myself. Um, You know, I think the AI or the robots, like, I don't know, will they become like a call center where, like, there's a human and they can, like, be on the call with you and, like, really go through that? I'm not at the level to give you the answer to that. All I know is that right now, the automation that's happening, I don't think is that great as a marketer. Like I don't even use a lot of these automated tools as a marketer myself because I know that it's very spammy and it's very unpersonalized and I don't want to show that, that reputation as a company to our potential prospects and customers. I want people to get in contact with me in a personal way or an authentic way where they leave that feeling like, yeah, Benjamin took five minutes of his, of his life to actually figure out who I am or, you know, why was I reaching out or something like that. And so just sending the same message to everybody else. I just think that's sometimes comes across very rude. Mm-hmm. It does. There is a big risk of that. Yeah, and that's the game you play. I mean, it's automation. Yeah, I think um, my COO made a really good statement to me this year because I'm I'm a CEO, so I'm always trying to automate. Like, I want to automate as many things as I can, but I can't is what my COO told me. There are certain things that are meant to be automated, and there are some things that are not meant to be automated. If your company was fully automated, then what... <laughs> If that was a thing, then I don't know, like maybe we missed the boat or something, but I feel like everybody would be doing that if that was the case. So like how many companies out there have the entire company fully automated? Were there, are there even any? I guess the point with that is just to say that AI and automation are great and you should have that and you should try to leverage that as much as you can, but there are some things that you should not. Legal would be an awfully tough one to automate. Yeah, I mean, I personally, we don't have like, a, you know, crazy like law firm handling our, our legal practices, but, you know, there's legal Zoom out there or other like law, law chatbots are huge. Every law firm has a chatbot on their website now. How do you feel about chatbots as a way to engage customers? It's interesting. I'm on the flip side because I've actually been on the other side of it, right? Where I'm the chatbot. I'm the guy building the flow on the back end with the developers. So like we did a project for one of the largest trash management companies in the United States and it, it worked like it cut down their call center time significantly. Um, and those customers didn't have to wait. They could get the answer to their garbage getting picked up 
then. They didn't have to wait hours or wait later in the day. But there's also people through that research of through that project we did that wanted to talk to somebody and would get frustrated. So I think there's just that dynamic of building chatbots that eliminate a certain percentage of things that you can help. Like you're not, maybe again, you can't use a chatbot to answer every single customer inquiry. At the end of the day, some people, no matter how many chatbot messages you sent them, they want to talk to you on the phone. And then if they can't talk to you on the phone, then sometimes they just take their business elsewhere. That's why a lot of people get frustrated with some of the big tech companies because they don't have a call center or a person to talk to on the phone. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's, it's thinking about, I guess, you, some businesses want to automate things for the benefit of the business, and then not think about automating it for the benefit of the customer. Okay, I understand what you mean. Um, so what are some examples of automation that, if developed, would help customers from a product offering standpoint? Yeah, product offering, number one, would just be like the rates getting us contracts like that could all be automated like i'll use that waste management company again like they could literally say what neighborhood are you in what service do you want okay great here's the invoice pay this you've got your service the whole process was automated right and they could have been talking to a chatbot on the website the whole way through doing that an example of maybe not on the flip side of that is like for example if the um, person is like, um, you know, the the garbage man didn't come on time, or um, maybe they left a specific item or something that they should have taken. Like, people will leave different items, right? So you can't always like, unless you're going to try to build as many items. There's always going to be somebody's going to say it a different way. There's also this linguistic thing that happens a lot when people talk to chatbots. Unfortunately. Some people are talking to Siri. Some people are talking to Alexa. Some people are talking to voice search. Like, God knows. It's just people incorrectly spell things where they say something in a different way and your chatbot is just not that smart yet to know how to answer all those things. The other thing is, is just, again, that classic, I want to talk to a person. Let me talk to your supervisor. They don't want to talk to a chatbot. People aren't dumb. People know what a chatbot is at this stage. So like if they feel like they're talking to a chatbot, then they're just like done. They don't they don't want to talk to the chatbot anymore. They want to actually talk to a human. Do you think that texting is a viable replacement for calling a call center? No. I think actually phone calls, there's a science uh, or there's a study that showed that in sales, and I know this more on the sales side, I can't say for customer service. But on the sales side of it, that people that call more to close sales versus people that just send texts and emails have like a 30% increased close rate. And it just comes back from the fact that when you make a sale and you hear voice, it actually adds emotion and you can kind of present uh, the service or product offering solution in a different way by the tone of your voice, the mood, the emotion that you hear from the voice. Yeah, that's interesting. And I I totally agree. I don't really like texting, honestly. I I think it's really hard to relay emotion through words. Well, that's why we have emojis, right? 
emojis are the emotional side of text messages now. But, you know, um, not everyone's trying to use emojis. Like, in my day-to-day, maybe half the people I talk to use emojis and half of them don't. Interesting. And for brands, would you say that communicating using emojis works for a certain set of the consumer base? Maybe, maybe not. All I know is I've tested it, and time and time again, from an engagement perspective, anything with emojis is going to have a higher engagement rate. And it's just probably going back to the idea of that it's visual at that stage. It's no longer just text that's boring text. It literally has a picture or some visual aspect. It has, a, it has a, an additional significant meaning behind just the text. It's being attributed to now a drawing or a, a visual. Do you advise for creative and what should be um, put onto a display uh, ad campaign? Yeah, we do um, creative for all different types of Google Ads campaigns. So we can help create the images, or if clients give them, then we can give them feedback and just use the images they provide. Okay, interesting. Um, And one thing that I wanted to ask related to that was... um, creative analytics and understanding the elements of an ad and deciding which elements to put together potentially um, in a DCO kind of activity. Um, but what what developments do you know of in the area of understanding creative performance and configuration? I mean, creative at the end of the day it's tough to say, I think, like, okay, this is always going to be, like, the creative that works the best. I think the algorithms, what they're doing is they're using the data to make creative, but I also have seen, like, creative ideas that have been created that had nothing to do with data. Like, they were just creative ideas that came out of, God knows, somebody's brain and was put into an image or a video, and it was just, it was organic. So... I think a lot of uh, like the display ads or um, responsive ads that you're seeing pop up now, those are all automatically generated creative images where they're using machine learning and taking the best images based on data, right? Does it have the biggest impression or click-through rate? Um, If I am looking at the heat design of a website, is, is it red over this image versus yellow and the other, you know, side of the website, like, those tools are in place to help improve creative. However, that doesn't disqualify a true artist making a creative art of work. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um, there is no way to automate inspiration and innovation. No, you can't automate that. That's just not possible. Innovation is bigger than automation. Automation is maybe a process or, or, or a step in innovation. Innovation will include more than just automation. Oh, but once AI becomes smarter than humans, then then innovation will become... It will, it will update itself, will it not? It's tough to say. How do you know what robots will do with innovation? I think... Uh, we think they can do that, but some of the AI things that have happened too have gone haywire. So I don't know. Do you know any good examples or stories? My favorite is always the um, <laughs> the uh, the day Mark Zuckerberg wrote 
uh, on Facebook, like they had to turn off their uh, AI uh, language that was being created on Facebook, it, like pretty much uh, created its own language and was like all of a sudden sending that language to like thousands of people and they had to turn it off immediately. And I remember very specifically, uh, I think it was like Mark Cuban and um, gosh, Elon Musk. They're both just like, yeah, we can't be having people like, you know, doing things like this because that's the AI going the wrong way. Like imagine an AI creates its own language and then like forces the entire world to know that language. Like those are things that I think, um, you know, people are scared about. And I think that's a classic example. That's really cool. Scary. Scary. But it's scary. <laughs> it's scary. That's what I'm saying. Like, so is that innovation or is that, you know, the flip side of it? Like mm. annihilation almost. Ooh, interesting. Oh, yes. Yeah. Not every direction we push is up. Right? It's some some of these directions may be the wrong way. Right, yeah. I like the, I hope innovation is usually for good, but maybe that's not always the case either. What return do you typically see on ad spend? And, you know, what differentiates you in your performance? That's a tough question. It depends on the platform. Um, so I'm not going to give you, like, what I see on each platform. I'll just tell you YouTube since we talk a lot about that. Clients pretty much don't stay with us if we're not producing a return on ad spend of 2 to 5x. Generally, that's kind of the benchmark. And then cost per lead just depends on what they're willing to pay for a lead. So they're going to tell us that it's different in different industries. That's cool. And what um, differences do you see in return for different kinds of customers? Is there a more ideal customer? Or would you say that kind of across the board with the right, you know, um, way, you know, with the right best practices you can achieve, anybody can achieve these results? I think it's tough from my perspective with low purchase products. So anything that's under $10, really hard, I think, um, unless it's just like a well-known brand or you've got something else outside of the product, like maybe there's an additional experience or service or, you know, additional add-ons or, you know, value sell-ups or lifetime value, things like that. Um, anything that is also... Um, generally I say higher ticket item has a bigger potential if it's the right value offer or messaging audience. Not always the case, but those are the ones where you're going to have to reach less people to make the same amount of sales versus products, you know, that are hundred to a thousand dollars. So the answer is, is I don't really want to work with a lot of products that are under $10 because the scalability or the profit margin will be less. Any items that are over 100, usually I'm scaling. And then um, if I'm in service-based industries, those can be some of the most highly profitable because those are, you know, if I'm selling a service that's in the thousands or, you know, even higher, then you you get it, right? If I only paid $5 and made $1,000, that's, that's a good ROI. That's interesting. Um, do you generally like SaaS-based business models? Do you find that to be the more interesting to you? Or do you prefer product-based companies? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you, you phrase it around SaaS. I would say 50% of our clients are service-based companies, but none of them are software-as-a-service companies. So they're more like industries that have been around forever, like lawyers. We've worked with like 15 different lawyers, or we've worked with um, solar companies, um, or we've worked with real estate people, or we've worked with insurance professionals. I mean, these are all service-based jobs that are never going away that have been around since you and I were born. So they have nothing to do with technology, but if they, you know, are selling the services or they can build a portfolio or they have the advertising spend, like there's a lot of factors to being successful, but it's, um, you know, like if you're the best in your area or region or whatever, like you can control that and advertising can be the growth opportunity versus like a software as a service business. I do agree with them if it's a software that I believe in and like I feel like it's giving a solution. I think the one thing is with software companies is there aren't as many um, maybe good marketers in my experience. They're very techie and focused on the product development side, but when it comes to getting like users or you know innovative social media campaigns to drive sales, you haven't really found many uh, software service companies doing YouTube ads very well, actually, in my experience. Interesting. Um, why would you say that is? Lack of knowledge. Of the opportunity? Of the opportunity and how to execute on the opportunity. Mm -hmm. What approach do you take to making videos that allows you to capitalize on that opportunity? the keyword research. So not just focusing on the creative, but actually connecting the video to what people are searching for. Mm -hmm. And where do you get your insights for what people are searching for? Yeah, Google Keyword Planner, Google and YouTube, the largest search engines in the world. Very cool. Um, you know, um, is that going to be a thing forever? Do you think that generally Google and YouTube, do you think like, what do you think would usurp, um, those two working together to kind of answer all of our questions and teach us everything? Like, what would it take to beat that? Mm, I mean, Baidu is not far off. They're the largest search engine in China. But I think it's just users at the end of the day. Um, you know, it's like asking, like, what is it going to take to, like, overthrow Coca-Cola? I don't know. Are we ever going to be able to get rid of Coca-Cola? Or there's just too many people that love Coca-Cola now? Maybe there's just too many people that love Google and YouTube now, and we're never going to get rid of it. Yeah, they're almost like they have such a brand, so much brand equity, so much relevance in the consumer market that it would really take a substantial change in technology for them and, and for them to be surpassed in it to convince people to leave. Yeah, so like a disruption, you know, like taxis losing out to an Uber. Do you see any... Um, Startup opportunities in the marketing analytics space? Startup opportunities for me to work in or? No, in, well, yes and no. But in general, like, are there any 
besides the upper funnel attribution issue we were talking about earlier, um, just like generally unanswered questions or areas where a new business could come in and potentially solve that problem? Yeah, I think a lot of businesses right now don't know how to move to the cloud fully. I think that's something people don't really understand marketing still fully and like that that's an important thing moving forward. And there's big companies that do that. But these big companies are not helping enough of the startups or um, it's not a focus maybe for some of these larger organizations. So I think that's something that, uh, yeah, I think that's an opportunity where there's a lot of businesses that can do that, but they're maybe not necessarily helping all the startups do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I want to ask about the investment that a startup should in your mind should have um as like an ideal progression um so let's say that you know there's a a company that you know sold shoes for a long time and they opened up a web store and um you know they're growing they just opened up more locations so they have a corporate office and they're deciding how are we going to grow our marketing stack from basically zero um, what, at what point would you recommend getting paid search, getting, uh, people who can help with paid search? Um, what, at what point would you recommend getting a data scientist and investing in a machine learning model? You know, what, what's a good progression in your mind that people can generally think about? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that. I would just say if you're growing every year at least 20%, um, that's solid, like in sales or revenue, however you want to look at it, but just growing 20% year over year. Um, and an easier way to answer that question, actually, is just looking at your bottom line revenue. So just saying, how much revenue does our company make? Let's multiply 1% to 5% of that. That's our marketing budget. So that's how you should grow your marketing budget is based on your revenue because I struggle all the time with my CEO. Well, yeah, we need all these marketing tools. We need to get more sales, but we're not making more money. So like that's a better way to think about it. And a lot of marketers don't think about that. Like the more money you make, the more you have for a marketing budget, but then you have to invest more marketing to make more money. So it's like, you know, there's a risk there too. And that just comes down to being a good marketer too sometimes. Like, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways you can delay payment of your marketing budget through credit cards or subscription-based models, things like that. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, are, what diff, are, is, sorry, is every platform's bidding different or have you found that there are any good synergies between platforms? Like I would imagine YouTube and Google, you can advertise from the same set of campaigns, right? Yeah, there's definitely differences. Um, they're all similar in many ways, yet they're all different intentionally is the answer to that question. If they were all the same, then they would be suing each other left and right all the time. Like they have to be different innately for legal purposes. Like they can't have the same logo. They can't have like the same UX. I mean, you know, it's funny because some of them are just literally like you can just tell they've just copied from other people i mean i don't want to like name any names but if you do like search you probably would know you know 
the two big guys, they look very, very similar. And Google was kind of at the front. Same thing with Facebook. If you look at any of the new type of social media ad platforms that are coming out right now, they kind of took a lot of the same design and ideas from Facebook because they were the guys in that space early on. So, yeah, they're all going to be different, but they're all going to have similar things because it it helps the overall user base grow faster that way because they're already using the other platforms. So it's, e it's easier to learn another platform if it's similar to another one. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. How do you feel about billboards? I don't like them. I feel like they're like obstructive. Yeah, they're not uh, the best. I, I I have not run any billboards for any of my clients since like 2012, to be honest. Meaning, well, I have I haven't heard of it at any of the companies I've worked at. Um. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know what I think about it because to, oh, one perspective is that, um, it's like such a legacy marketing solution. It's almost like adorable. Um, but the other one, and, and maybe there's some unique value there as it gets older, but, um, the other side is like, I, we shouldn't be obstructing like the view of a city with like 12 ads for like this one product, you know, um, that's kind of crazy. And, and uh, I guess I, we can ha have a discussion maybe around this. Um, but how much marketing is too much marketing and how does a brand decide when they're doing too much? I don't know if there's too much marketing unless that marketing is like diminishing the value of the brand. If the if the marketing is improving the value of the brand, then I don't think there's ever enough. But if it's like making the brand seem bad or salesy or doesn't have good values, then I think that's the answer. And for a marketer, your answer should be, it doesn't matter how much marketing you do or don't do. It's what is your organization able to do with your resources available? And then you can use that metric I just gave you. Whatever your revenue is, multiply that by 1% to 5%, and that's your budget. Some people run an entire company as one marketing person in a marketing budget. Other people have large corporations. Other people work with agencies. There's no wrong or right way. It's just looking at what is going to be reasonable and where can you get success. What are you looking forward to this year? I don't know. I guess just more transparency. Honestly, more transparency on how companies are using data in general. Like, forget about government policies. I'd like more companies to actually communicate how they're using data. I agree. I agree. And, and if it doesn't happen from a legislative perspective, it will certainly happen from a consumer perspective. Um, there's definitely a lot of demand there. This has been a great conversation, Benjamin. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.